we recalibrated a bit last week. We only preached through the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we asked really two basic questions. So if, you're, if you weren't here last week and you, you kind of want to have a little more context jumping into this sermon, those two questions were simply this, who am I and what am I seeking? Who am I and what am I seeking? We thought about our positional realities in Christ. And when I talk about positional realities in Christ, what I mean is what Christ has done that's affected our standing, our relationship with God. So because of Christ, these things are true, right? We've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Christ is our life, Paul says, and we will appear with Christ in glory. We consider two general basic commands, right? Seek the things that are above. That can mean many things, but at the very minimum, God is above. So seek God. Set your mind on things that are above. There's a relationship between what we're seeking and where our minds are, right? Wherever our minds are, where they go on a, a Thursday evening where you don't have anywhere they have to go, that's where your heart is likely aimed. So we thought about these positional realities, that, that we've died in Christ, our lives are hidden in Christ, we'll receive our lives when Christ appears, we'll receive our reward when he returns, we will appear in glory with Christ. We thought about these basic commands. Am I seeking the kingdom of God? Am I seeking the things that are above? Am I setting my mind on Christ? Am I setting my mind on things that are above, or am I essentially just like everyone else? And it's from that foundation, that basic understanding of our identity, being tied up in Christ, and those basic commands to seek Him with the general direction of our hearts, minds, and bodies, it's with that basic foundation that we begin to live into who we are. It's from that foundation that we begin to live into who we are. As I alluded to during our time of confession, there is some tension here. Yes, my life is hidden with Christ, but I'm also right here in front of you. And you're right there in front of me. Yes, I've died with Christ, but I'm alive, right? I've died with Christ, but, but I'm still alive in this body, at this moment, in this place, in space, in time. Anytime you come to those tensions, the best thing is not to ignore them. The best thing is to dive right into them. This morning, we will learn, begin to learn, how to be who we really are. We will begin to learn how to be who we really are. The title of this sermon is Be Who You Are. So how do we begin thinking about this? How do we begin thinking about becoming right here in this body at this moment, actual transformation that I can see, touch, taste, feel, whatever, in conjunction with the reality that my life is Christ, I've died with him, I've raised with him, how does that ultimate reality impact and influence the type of man or woman I or you are becoming? And I think there's two basic movements that are going to outline our time together. The first part of the sermon will deal with the first movement, and the second part will deal with the second movement. 
We put things to death and we bring things to life. We put things to death and we bring things to life. Or we could say it another way, we take things off and we put things on. We take things off and we put things on. And while we're doing that, while we're actually volitionally, intentionally, and tangibly doing that, God is doing what we could never do. And that is clean us up from the inside out. That is reshape, remold, and transform us. That Just actions and just stopping things and starting things could never do. While we are putting things to death and while we are putting things on, while we are bringing things to life, the Holy Spirit is renewing us from the inside out. So this morning, let's come to God's Word and ask Him to teach us how to be who we are. So let's look in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5 begins, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. We're not going to read verse 12 right now, but just so you get a sense of where we're going. Put on, then, begins verse 12. Beginning verse 5 is what? Put to death, etc., 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 which we'll talk about momentarily. And then beginning in verse 12, we'll jump into the second part of the sermon. Put on, then. Put on. On. So let's focus first on that upper half, that, that put-to-death part. Ultimately, here we see a list in sort of two different places in the text of things that Paul is saying to put to death. Put to death that which is earthly in you. And he goes on to list some of those things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. That first term that we translate sexual immorality is somewhat of a, a catch-all term that deals with all sorts of sexual immorality from sort of deviance that, that the culture might think is fine, like pornography and things that Christians would, would turn, their, turn their backs on, but the culture would say, oh, it's no big deal. So culturally minor, not spiritually minor, culturally minor sorts of deviance. And then, uh, you know, incest and, and things that our, our culture would, would have much more um, problems with. So all of those types of things that would have been acceptable, more acceptable even at this moment uh, in time and space when this was written, put to death all of it. Put to death all impurity. Put to death all evil desires and passions and, and idolatry, covetousness, wanting things that you don't have, putting things in a place where you're serving those things, where your life is sort of in service to getting or attaining certain things. Put away anger, unrighteous anger that just festers in the heart. Put away wrath, a general dislike and disdain and just uh, evil, ill will towards. Put away malice. Put away slander, talking, 
ill about other people, put away obscene talk, right? Not just a few words that, that culturally we've decided we can't say, but, but, but all language that is unhelpful, all language that does not build up, all language that is, is obscene. Why does he list these things? You notice the first several all deal with sort of sexual immorality, and the rest really deal with sort of interpersonal type of, type of sins. We can speculate that these are particular problems to the Colossians, and when Paul, as a Christian leader, sees specific problems, he doesn't generalize or run from them. He attacks them because those problems are cancers within the church. He spells it out plainly. You guys have to put these things to death. He reminds the church in verse 6, on account of these things, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, meaning God's righteous anger that burns towards sin will be manifest against all of these things. The world was not intended to be a place where sexual exploitation could happen. The world was not intended to be filled with people who hate each other. The world was not intended to be that way. God created the world to function in harmony and peace, and shalom would be the biblical term for it. All things would exist in love and grace and unity and harmony, and all things would point to the creator. But sin enters the story, so that where there should be love, there is hate. Where there should be justice, there is exploitation. On an individual level and a cultural level, things aren't as they should be. And so where is our God? Our God is in heaven and his anger burns at this. And one day he will put an end to all of it. The wrath of God is coming on account of these things. Now you used to be this way, he reminds the Christians. You guys used to walk in this when you lived in these things. You were just like everyone else. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Meaning, when you were walking in these things, you were living just like everyone else. But what you did not realize was that as you're living with everyone else, or just like everyone else, you're not being an individual. You're not showing your autonomy. You're not finding yourself. You're in fact being like everyone else, and you're following a course that's laid out by the spiritual enemy me. And spiritually, you were dead. You used to walk in these things. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Perhaps if you are a Bible underliner like me, you might underline that word, all. <laughs> you must put them all away. Our churches are full of people full of bitter and hatredness that make them feel better because they're not sexual deviants in some way. We lose our credibility when we put some of these things away. Killing that which is earthly in you takes intentional, sustained effort. And if you're not sure whether you are putting that which is earthly in you to death, if you're not sure if you are or not, then you are not. 
Being honest about these things requires individual responsibility. It requires me being able to face the reality that I do things I should not do. It requires me to have the humility and boldness to say the deepest problems in the world are not just out there, but they're in here. That the seeds of the sins that have affected so many can exist in my flesh. And I must actively put those things to death. This requires individual responsibility. It requires effort. It requires humility to understand that I'm putting some of these away, but by God's grace, I need to put them all away. I am never going to be done fighting sin. The day I'm finished fighting sin, sin has defeated me. We will fight and fight until we die. Grace is glory militant, as one Puritan preacher said, meaning grace, God's forgiveness, our turning from sin and God's forgiveness, is glory that we received fighting through life for us. And then glory, the benefit we get is grace triumphant. Meaning when we see Jesus face to face and when all of our sin is gone, that is grace that is won. That is happening at the end of a life well lived. That happens for those who turn from their sin and trust God's grace as we do battle with the earthly stuff that is inside of us. But before we begin to think that this is just a self-improvement exercise, Paul understands this is happening in the context of a community. Christianity is not a cult of the individual, and that is so important to grasp because that's how our churches today market themselves. We are the place where you can come and be changed. But that's not essentially the message of the gospel. Paul using this phrase new self doesn't mean he's focusing on personal behavior over and above a corporate understanding of the new life. As one scholar notes, while morality requires individual responsibility and character, Christianity is not for the self-sufficient individual. Christianity, I would maybe take this in your notes, is a way of worship and witness for an entire people of God. Christianity is a way of worship and witness for an entire people of God, a new humanity. So that new self that we're putting on is not just a better me that's certainly involved in the process, but the new self is used in Pauline literature as a metaphor for congregational and relational wholeness. Individuals who respond to God's call by confessing Jesus as Lord are transformed by God's salvation, by his salvation creating grace. They become members of a people in whose life and history God's power is at work. And verses 9 through 11 really assume a context of community. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in that new self, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised. There is not barbarian, Scythian, and slave, and free. But Christ is all and in 
all. Paul essentially is telling the church, you are putting these things off individually, and you are putting these things off corporately. And you, plural, meaning y'all, y'all are being transformed by the renewal of your mind in Christ Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, right? You are putting these things off individually and corporately, and you are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You are being transformed. Your whole orientation to the world is changing at the hands of Jesus. As you are turning from sin, individually in all of you, as you are turning from sin, God is changing you. And you are looking like Christ. And in this new creation, in this new body, in this church, there is not Jew or Greek. Think about the divisions we have in our world today and multiply at times a hundred. And that's what would be feeling in the New Testament. They're not Jews and Greeks. They're not haves and have-nots. They're not uncircumcised and uncircumcised. And to make sure that the Colossian Christians understood what he was saying, he said there isn't even barbarian and Scythian. Oh, the Scythians was a, a violent group of people on the northern coast of the Black Sea. To the Greeks, Scythians were uneducated, they were uncivilized, and everyone believed they were just altogether an inferior people. Paul's saying, there's no different from the Scythian teenage boy and the greatest Greek philosopher when they come into the body of Christ. There is no longer any distinction. In other letters, he will say, the wall that kept them apart was torn down in the body of Christ. You're taking off this sin, and that's not just an individual venture, though it requires individual responsibility. And you are ultimately, as we transition to what we're putting on, you're being renewed by Christ. He is changing you. And this new self in it, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, anything like that. But it's all Christ. And the life of Christ, which is your life, is being manifest in these people. That's why when someone says, I'm taking time away from church to get my life cleaned up, that is an American presupposition. That is not a biblical presupposition. When someone says that to you, you don't need to bully them into coming back. You need to pray for them diligently and intersect your life with theirs as much as possible because God has designed the church to be where our lives are transformed. Transformation comes from God and requires us together and you individually and me individually taking account, taking responsibility of our sin and putting it to death. This transitions us to what we're putting on in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. There we see it again. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How can I begin to be who I really am? I can put sin to death, and I can put on life. As I'll say in a little bit, you will kill the ugly and bring the beautiful to life. Verse 12, put on. Don't forget who you are. All of this activity flows from a renewed identity. So if you're here this morning and you're not, like you wouldn't say you're a Christian, then if you leave and you're thinking, well, if I just don't do these things and I do these things, then I'm successful. Like that's, that's, that's missing the point, right? The point is that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's from this place, understanding who we are in Christ, that we begin to live God's way. So as God's chosen ones, as the holy and beloved people of God, before we put on any of this stuff, that's who we are. Put on these things. Compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Our D group is going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. And I notice this echo in Paul's language here of some of the things that Jesus is teaching, this um, idea that we should be kind, we should be humble, we should be meek, we should be patient. Another command in the text is to bear with one another. Another command in the text is to forgive each other when one has a complaint against another. Now, bearing with one another and forgiving one another is incredibly difficult to do. And I would argue that you can live what you think is a faithful Christian life without ever learning to bear with somebody else and forgive somebody else. Because what happens is, as soon as something goes wrong, right, you get into conflict, maybe you're in a church where something happens that you don't necessarily agree with, you instantly become sort of us versus them. And we instantly justify whatever decision we're going to make. Right? I, I don't need to forgive this person because what they did was wrong, so I don't need to forgive them. That's how we begin to justify some of the relational stuff in our lives. Or uh, I'm leaving this church because this person I just can't stand being around that person. That person's not a Christian anyways, and, and X, Y, Z. And we begin to justify not bearing with each other. We begin to justify not being patient with each other. We begin to justify not carrying each other's burdens. We begin to justify not assuming the best in one another. We begin to justify breaking the commands of Scripture. So bearing with one another and forgiving, we all want people to bear with us, and we all want people to forgive us, but if we're going to be a healthy community, we have to be people who bear with other people. We have to be people who forgive other people. It's impossible to call ourselves a Christian community without grace being received and grace being extended. 
At any moment in a church's life, there are those who are struggling and those who are not struggling. And it is our responsibility to seek each other out, bear with one another, and forgive each other where we wrong and where we are wronged. This is tough to do. It sounds good, but it is also necessary. But how can we do it? The text goes on to say, and above all of these, if you don't hear anything else, guys, put on love. Love is the glue that takes all of these virtues and binds them together in perfect harmony. Love is the context that makes these virtues make sense. Love is what makes these things possible. You will not forgive someone you do not love. You will not bear with someone you do not love. It is impossible to be faithful as disciples of Jesus if we are not marked by love. We demonstrate that we have experienced God's love by extending God's love. Above all of these, Paul says, put on love. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body. That's a gracious command for many of you this morning who just get anxious about everything, whether it's school, work, family, church, whatever it might be. Here's a good command for us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Don't let anxiety rule in your heart. Don't let fear of man rule in your heart. Don't let fear of what could happen rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And be thankful. Be thankful. Verse 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a command we're seeking to obey this morning as we teach God's word, as we read God's word, as we admonish one another with wisdom, thinking about how we're applying God's word. We read some psalms, we've sang spiritual songs, we'll sing a hymn as we leave. To be thankful in our hearts to God who's given us all good things, who's given us life. When the peace of Christ rules in our hearts and when the word of Christ dwells in our hearts, we are going to be thankful to God, focusing on the gifts he's given, not the things we think we need. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How can you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? We can teach it. We can listen to it. We can obey it. We can apply it by admonishing one another and each other's in wisdom. We can sing God's word so that it sinks deeper into our hearts. We must be people in whom the word of God dwells, and not just dwells, but dwells richly. And finally, Paul says, whatever you do, like everything, he's trying to be as comprehensive here as possible. You're doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, in word or deed, everything you say, everything you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, knowing that everything you do, in all you do, you're an ambassador 
of Christ, that Christ has you in this station, and if another situation were better for you, divine providence would have you there right now. But you're not there. You're here. So while you're here, and whatever you are doing, if you love it, if you hate it, if you're looking for the next thing to be doing, whatever you're doing, you're doing it as a son of God. You're doing it as a daughter of God. So do it as well as you can for the glory of that God because God's peace is dwelling in you. God's peace is reigning over you. This is a really important word in a place like Charleston where a lot of young people often are like, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. There are many great places and great places to be, but the peace of Christ must rule over us or that anxiety will cripple us wherever we go. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell. And whatever you do, if you're a teacher, if you are a lawyer, doctor, if you are a janitor, if you are anything, go about your life in the name of the Lord Jesus with a thankful heart. I'm taking off that which is earthly. I'm putting that sin to death. And I'm putting on thankfulness. I'm putting on compassion. I'm putting on humility, and I'm putting on kindness. Now, I put these things on because I don't already have them. I get them from God. I receive them from the Holy Spirit. So as we work towards the conclusion, um, Ryan, if you want to come on up, how do we think about becoming who we are in, in light of the text that we've kind of walked through in our few moments this morning? We kill the ugly, and we bring to life the beautiful. We kill the ugly, and we bring to life the beautiful. And we trust God for the change that comes. The old is passing away, and the new is coming. My charge for you this morning, Christian, and my charge for us this morning, church, is to understand that transformation is a process. And I want us to do two things in that light. I want us to understand that it's not inevitable that I will finish well. It is not inevitable that I'm going to finish well. Meaning it's not a, a sure thing that I'm going to look back and see this marked transformation in my life and in the community of faith which I lead. Coasting will get you nowhere unless you're going downhill. Understand that. I think we, we, don't, we don't understand that often. That it's not a, just a given that I'm going to grow in faith. And the second reality then, commit. Commit, commit, commit. Commit to the process, man. Commit to the process of killing the ugly and bringing to life the beautiful well, how do I do that this morning? Well, do you see sin in your life? Call it out. Name it. Confess it. And then move past it, knowing that Christ has disarmed the powers of sin. He's nailed it to the cross. You see sin in your life? Call it out. Name it. Confess it. And move past it because Jesus has already killed it. Kill the ugly. And when we think about bringing the beautiful to life, we have to use what I like to call our theological imaginations. 
for just a moment, we have to reimagine the possible and think about what can happen when I'm not just living in my strength, but living in God's strength. Meaning it's impossible for an arrogant guy like me to become more humble, but God can make me more humble. And usually humiliation is the road to humility, as I've learned. For just a moment, though, reimagine what's possible. Like, you can live a life where the ugly things are dying and the beautiful things are coming to life. That can happen. You don't have to be this apathetic. You don't have to be stuck. You don't have to hold on to these sins. You don't have to be wrathful. You don't have to be angry. You can be kind. You can be merciful. You individually and us corporately, we're, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, as Paul will say elsewhere. As we're putting sin to death and bringing beauty to life in Christ and because of Christ, we can be kind. We can be compassionate. We can be loving. We can be humble. We can be meek. We can be patient. Oh, I want to be like that. Here's a curveball as we end. I want to be like that. Because that's who I really am. I want to be like that. I want to be merciful. I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I want to be humble. I want to be all of those things. Because that's who I really am. Uh, when we do some premarital counseling, I use Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And there's a couple chapters in that book uh, that deal with spiritual friendship. And he talks about really marriage being less about two people finding their felt needs in each other and, and marriage being a, a process of, of spiritual friendship. And what creates a spiritual friendship? A common destination, right? And like films like The Lord of the Rings, books and films like The Lord of the Rings or uh, you know, even Harry Potter. You think about all these stories that grip our cultural imagination. Really, Lord of the Rings is about friendship, right? It's about a common goal that unites superficially incompatible people, and they become friends on that journey. And spiritual friendship is, is a similar pilgrimage. It's, it's a journey to kingdom come. And as we're on that journey together, that common mission uh, creates in us commonalities. So people that we can look around the room right now and be like, I have nothing in common with that person, that person, that person. Yeah, except for that your lives are all hidden in Christ together. <laughs> so as we're journeying together to Christ, the superficial can fade because what we really need together is to find out who we ultimately are. And Tim Keller makes the point that as a husband and wife are on this journey of spiritual friendship together. They can forgive each other for the unforgivable things that happen in the context of a marriage because they can say, that's not who you really are. And that's not just hyperbole. They can say, I see who God's making you, and I want in on that. 
I see that God's making you humble. God's making you kind. God's making you compassionate. And I know that's who you really are because that's who you are in Christ. And so these things that you do that are unkind, these things that you do that are unloving, these things that you do that are not compassionate, they're not ultimately you because they are dying like a leaf in a West Virginia fall. They won't be there forever. And my job in your life, husband or wife, is to help prune those things off so that the you who is really you will emerge. So that as we're journeying together to kingdom come, we're becoming who we really are. Now marriage is just one spiritual friendship. The church is where those spiritual friendships are forged and formed in where those journeys happen. Here's our cry to each other this morning. I see who God's making you, and I want in on that process. And I know who God's making me, and I need you to help me become who I really am. That is spiritual friendship. That is the kind of people we must be. My prayer for us this morning, before we approach the Lord's table, is just that God would bring the beautiful to life inside of us. Sometimes we come to church uh, expecting some sort of a transaction, right? I'm going to give them an hour of my time, and they're going to give me an encouraging talk. <laughs> I'm going to give them you know, X, Y, Z inputs, and they're going to give me these outputs. But the more I read the Bible, the more I read what Paul is teaching these churches, Paul is understanding that the church is a one family, and the point here is that it's even more intense than that. The church is one body, and there's neither Jew nor Greek, and that this taking off and this putting on is a venture that happens together. So our goal as a congregation isn't to reach all these empirical benchmarks. It's not just to be content producers. It's not just to be show producers. It's not just to be goods dispensers to each other and to the neighborhood. Though some of those things we will do, but we need a recentering and a refocusing. The, what the New Testament has in mind for the church is a body, a body where all things sad are becoming untrue, where the beautiful things are coming to life, and Christ is being made much of because he is all and he is in all. There's a famous saying. That it's attributed to a million different people because it's so good everyone wants to claim it, right? Christianity began in Palestine as a fellowship, as a people, as a body. But it moved to Greece and became a philosophy. And then it moved to Italy and became an institution. And then it moved to Europe and became a culture. And then it moved to America and became a business. where we employ people to dispense religious goods, forgetting that the whole point of this is that we are together journeying to kingdom come. The dead is being just done away with, and life is coming to pass in our midst. That's the sort of fellowship we must be. Christ is all, 
and Christ is in all. In just a moment, when you come to the Lord's table, we're proclaiming that Christ is all and Christ is in all. He is our only hope. He is our prize. He is our reward. He is our life. He has secured our past. He has secured our future. He gives meaning to our present, that we are the Jesus people participating in the Jesus life, the hands and feet of Jesus reaching out to a lost and hurt and broken world. We are putting to death that which is earthly, and we are bringing to life that which is beautiful, and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another by this Jesus. When we take this bread and when we take this cup, we are saying, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. He gives the change, he gives the transformation, and I need him. Oh, how I need him. So I'll invite and just a moment after we pray and have a moment for reflection, all who are followers of Christ to come to the Lord's table. If you're here and, and you're like, man, I, I never really got that interplay between what I believe and how I live and how that's all working. And this morning, I really believe that it's clicking for the first time. It's making sense for the first time. And I want to be a part of taking off the ugly and putting on the beautiful. Then this morning, the Lord's table is not for you. But what is for you is a conversation with me. Say, Mason, man, it just makes sense now. I want to know Jesus. And the miracle of resurrection will have happened as you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and his grace. So if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure this morning, you can do a couple things. You can stay seated and know that if someone looks at you and judges you, they have not been listening for the last 35 minutes. Okay, which might be true anyways. Or you can come to the table and just kind of put your hands up and say, not today, and I will just pray a blessing over you. It's like, God, thank you for this person. Thank you for creating them, loving them. Have your way in them. So I want you to be comfortable and know that those two options are available for you, and no one is thinking anything uh, negative about you. But if you are in Christ, I invite you to come and proclaim that it's Jesus who brings this change. And all things sad are becoming untrue, and the beautiful is coming to life. Let's pray. Father, um, your word challenges us. Your word convicts us. But your word brings us hope that we are being renewed in the image of our creator, that your spirit in us is just taking a chainsaw to the roots of sin in our heart. And that which is earthly, you are just raking out of us. You're pulling all these ugly weeds and you're planting new seeds in our heart. You're planting seeds of love, of kindness, of humility, of compassion, of meekness. And help us, God, tend to those seeds in our hearts. Help us understand that you're creating us in your image, that you are creating this body in which there is no division to make much of yourself, that we together might be a testament of your power and of your love and of your grace and of your mercy so that a watching world will see what happens when humanity lives God's way. Help us, God, to reimagine what's possible in accordance with your word, not our efforts. 
Help us strive to uproot the ugly and help us strive in your grace to cultivate the loving. Lord, give us a spirit of thanksgiving as you commanded us in your text as we come to the Lord's table. Our hearts cry out that transformation comes from you and we need you. We need you. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray.